Second Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a great, great chapter in the life and the account and life of David. And it says, And David said, He's become king now, he's been king for a while, he's got his kingdom established, he's the man. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machar, the son of Emil, at Lobadar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machar, the son of Emil, at Lobadar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid him homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and who lived in Ziba's house, became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Generosity has a wrecking effect on our lives. If someone is very generous to us, it always seems to wreck us in some way. We, we, don't, we feel overwhelmed by it. We don't, we don't think we should experience it. Or we think, why didn't I think of that? That's such a great idea. How come I didn't uh, give that kind of generosity? It has this wrecking effect on us. And in this story, David is unbelievably generous to Mephibosheth. But what I want us to see at the beginning is that that's not the whole story. Why is he Generous to Mephibosheth. Who is Mephibosheth and what does it show us at the beginning? And I think what we need to see in our time, in our day, and this week's particularly, this account absolutely reminds us and shows us about the existence of pain. There is pain everywhere. This whole account of Mephibosheth, we first get a glimpse of him in Second Samuel chapter 4. When it's going through Saul's lineage. And Saul is killed. His grandfather Jonathan is killed. His dad. And he's five years old. He's very young. And his, the, his, the, the servant hears that Saul's dead. The king's dead. Jonathan's dead. What are we going to do? They're, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill all the children of Saul. That's what you do. And so she picked up Mephibosheth. This is five-year-old. She went running off. She trips, it says. She fell. And she broke his legs. 
and his legs never healed. And for almost 15 to 20 years now, this is Mephibosheth's life. He's physically broken. I mean, he, he, he realizes every single day that he's, he's from the son, the grandson of Saul. He's Jonathan's son. He was in line to be king. And he's physically nothing like a king. He, he's weak. He can't walk right. And he's living in Lobadar. He's, which his name, Mephibosheth, means seething dishonor. And he lives in a place called Lobadar, which means no pasture. It was a city of refuge. So this young five-year-old, who was going to be king, he thought. He had everything, all the privileges in the world. He was going to be somebody. His nurse drops him. He breaks his legs, and he's crippled. They never get fixed. And then he's sent to a city of refuge where it's a city where it's for his protection, Lobodar, and it's just a miserable place. There's no pasture there. There's, there's nothing good about it. He's physically broken down, and he's, his, his name has seething dishonor. That, I believe, would become his life. Because this is, I think it wouldn't take much, by the way the passage of the Scripture paints it, for us to realize what it's saying about Mephibosheth. He, he's a should-have-been king. He's a should-have-had-this, should-have-had-this, and none of this worked out, and none of it was his fault. These are all things that happened to him. He was homesick for what should have been his kingdom. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was part of World War II and the assass- tried to assassinate Hitler for just the r- wrong that Hitler did, was put in prison, and he was in prison. He wrote these letters to prison, and he says this, The longing of homesickness is the great longing. So imagine if you're Mephibosheth, this five-year-old, you're crippled, your dad's dead, your grandfather's dead, everything's gone in your life. You have nothing. You're physically broken, you live with that constantly, and it's nothing that you did. And you live with this emotional brokenness at all, and you get all these people around you in this city of refuge who still liked your grandfather and still liked your father and will sit and talk in the, in the cafes of Lobodar. Man, wouldn't it be great if Saul was still king? Oh, if Saul was going to be king. Man, if we had somebody who could rise up and be like Saul again for us. But there's just that Mephibosheth. He's crippled. We got no hope. There's no hope for us. The would-be king, he's he's nothing. And all the stories that Mephibosheth would have heard about, this is who you could have been. This is who you should have been. Mephibosheth was an angry, sad person. His, his name was seething dishonor. He lived in this place of no pasture. He was physically broken. He was emotionally broken. And it started to become part of his identity. That's what brokenness does to us. And there is a lot of pain in the world. There's all kinds of pain in our country right now. Just watch the news the last two weeks, and clearly there is pain everywhere. Last weekend, I was, had the privilege to be at Jenna Wilkinson's Wedding. She grew up in our church here. It was great. Weddings are unbelievably wonderful, especially Christian weddings. We have two, and it was a Christian wedding. Two great people getting married. It was an absolute blast to be there. It was a complete joy. And I'm sitting around talking to people at the reception dinner, people I didn't meet. I didn't know, and I met them, I was talking to them. After the reception, I'm talking to them. And I'm meeting all these new people this weekend all over the place. This big wedding, big celebration. But almost every conversation that I had in the midst of the celebration, as you got to talk to people, what do you do? What you're doing? What's your story? Everybody shared a pain. 
This is their story. Everybody's story had some kind of pain in it, some kind of brokenness, some kind of difficulty, some kind of hardship. They got them here. Even in the midst of the celebration and wedding, what was talked about was the real-life things of pain. That's the reality of our lives, isn't it? That's the existence of pain that lives in the world. I mean, Mephibosheth, he could have been a contender. He could have been somebody, he thought. But all these things happened to him. And he was a victim. And he became to self-victimize himself. It was sadness. He was broken. He had deep wounds. That's the picture of Mephibosheth. And that's the picture the Bible paints for us of this character that needed great generosity given to him. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's how you feel about your life. I could have been somebody. If people would have just done this to me, or if I would have got this break, or if I would have had this situation happen to me, I, I could have done something with my life, but now I just feel like it's, it's broken. There's nothing that really can good come out of it. And, I, and I, all these things that I've been, that I have been, and these aren't even things that I, I did myself. I, I've been victimized. These are things that happened to me. Why? Those are all the things that Mephibosheth would have thought as well. And he was tempted to believe some lies. When you have things happen to you, out of your control, that make you broken, that hurt you, that you can't change, there are some lies that you're tempted to start to believe because you just look around and all you see is brokenness. You look through the, the lens of your life and you see it's just broken, 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 pain, pain, pain. And little glimmers of hope, but deep down, you just feel shattered. And that was Mephibosheth. And the lies that you're tempted to believe is that there is no hope. And it leads you to become very cynical or very fearful. And that was exactly the situation that Mephibosheth found himself in. He didn't know the story. He didn't know why David wanted to get into him. He didn't know what was happening in his mind. He thought for sure that the only reason that David would call me, the king would call me, was to destroy me. He found me out. For my entire life, they've been hiding me out here so that nobody would know that I might have some semblance of a life. And now the king knows who I am and he wants to get me. That's, he's, he's a broken and impained individual and when he comes to david when he comes to david david brings him to him and the first thing that he he does is mephibosheth throws himself it says he goes prostrate before the king which literally means he just threw himself down the the man could not walk he threw himself to the ground pleading for any part of mercy he just expected more pain because pain exists and pain is part of our stories it's part of our lives But the lie about pain is that we can start assuming, like Mephibosheth did, that there's just no hope, that this is it. This is just the way it's going to be. And we become very fearful. And David says, Mephibosheth. He says his name first. Mephibosheth, don't fear. Don't fear. Could you imagine that moment in Mephibosheth's life? His whole life he heard about who he was supposed to be what he could have been. I mean, crippled. And now the king knows him and he wants to die. And there's this absolute explosion of hope that comes across Mephibosheth. And why is that? 
Because the reality is he should have been killed. That's just what the kings did back then. Some, some commentator put it this way. When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can just stay within the passages of Scripture, and you can watch Basha in 1 Kings, or Zimri in 1 Kings, or Jehu in 2 Kings 10 to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, and everybody practiced it. And the reality was Mephibosheth was still David's enemy. He was the grandson of Saul. He he was of the line of Saul. He was the enemy of David, and he should have been taken out. But instead of being taken out, David does give him what it says in verse 3. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Hesed love is the Hebrew word, which means more than love. It is just this covenantal love. David says, Is there anybody still in the house of Saul that I can give covenantal love to? Not anybody that deserves it. Because Jonathan is David's, Mephibosheth is still the enemy. But he wants to give him covenant love, which is just unconditional, non-consumer love. It's just giving with no expectation and no ability on the other person to give it back. That's the kind of love that David wanted, God's kind of love. That's what David was looking to give to Mephibosheth, this angry, crippled man. And didn't deserve it at all. But God wanted, David wanted to give to them, and the result was, in Mephibosheth's life, unbelievable explosion of hope. He, he's called to sit at the king's table. He can't believe this. He's going to be given all his family's inheritance. He's going to have servants. His life is completely, radically changed from what it used to be to what it is now, and he's overwhelmed by this. I mean, he he expected to die, but unbelievable explosion of hope came into his life when someone said, you know, I I don't want to kill you. You don't deserve this, but I want to give you grace. I want to give you unbelievable love. I want to give you unbelievable joy. I want to make, make all things as well and as right for you as possible. That's what David desired. He wanted to do this. He wanted to do this because he made a covenant with his dad. David made this covenant with Jonathan and said, listen, Jonathan said, David, I will, you should be the rightful king. You should be the man. But just take care of my family. Let them live. And in Jonathan's mind, that just meant let Mephibosheth live in Lobadar. Just let him live. Because I know that you, that you, you should kill all your enemies, but let my family just live somewhere. And David takes it a step farther, which is what covenant love always does. It takes it up a step higher. He, he exceeds those things. He says, you know what, Jonathan? I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to adopt you as my son. You're going to sit at the king's table. You're going to have everything that you possibly want. You're not just going to survive. You are going to thrive. That's what hope does for people. It, it gives us great hope. It's intentional. David was extremely intentional in his commitment, and it was excessive in his generosity. Are you that way? As believers, we have the ability to do this. This is what we should do for people. 
There are all kinds of pain. Everywhere you work, look at work. Sit down and talk to people this week at work. And all you're going to hear, if you listen, is their stories of pain and brokenness. Because that's what makes up much of life. And for the Christian, we can give people hope. We can be intentional. And we can be excessive about it and commit ourselves to it. That's what David did. He, he said, Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I'm going to commit myself to you. And I know you can never pay me back. Ever pay me back. That's what explosive hope does for somebody's life. That's hard for us because we need that. David, he said, I'm going to bring you to my table, but we need the same thing. But how, how can we, who all have broken stories, we all have pain, we all have been victims and victimizers, we see it all the time. How can we demonstrate this kind of hesed covenantal love, excessive generosity to people? How, how can we do it? Because we're called to. We can do it when we embrace the truth of grace. It is an absolute wonder when you think of the grace that God has done for us. I've never been to Denver, Colorado before. It's my first time this past weekend. So one of the guys I was staying with, he said, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a tour. So I went on Highway 70, which I never heard of in my life. I went up out of Denver, and I, he, he drove me, and we're driving, and I'm talking. These little two-year-olds in the back seat, and we're just talking. You know, I'm thinking, this is cool, this is cool. And all of a sudden, we got outside Denver, and we went up a hill, and we came down, and we went up another hill, and all of a sudden, just perfectly in front of me was the white-capped mountains. And literally, I went, just like that. I've never had a reaction like that to something that spectacular. It was unbelievably filled with wonder for a moment, and I loved it. I just couldn't believe it. I'm starting to take pictures, and I'm looking at my camera thinking, that does nothing for what this picture is. It is an absolute scene of wonder, if you've seen there. That's what grace is, where it just took, literally, took my breath away for a second, and I went, And laughed because I did that. I was not expecting how spectacular it was. No wonder how many of you told me, hey, the mountains are good, Paul. The mountains are good, Paul. It's spectacular when you get out there. That's what grace should do for us. When we experience and embrace grace, it should fill us with such wonder because it is so wonderful. With all the pain, with all the things that we're going through, that is what grace does for us. And David is at his best here in 2 Samuel chapter 80. He's at his best because he's demonstrating for us what the true king is. David was the king. But he is demonstrating for us what the true king is like. And the true king is even greater than David, who gives us unbelievable grace. Jesus is our greater king. And Mephibosheth, as his enemy, still got grace and covenant love from God. And in Romans chapter 5, it says... We have been given great love by God, even as before we were yet, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were against God, even while we were his enemies, God said, I love you, and I want to pour out my hesed, covenantal, unbelievable, awe-inspiring, wondering grace on your life. You say, I don't really feel that. I I don't see how that's possible. It was experienced by 
Mephibosheth, but as, even as the chapter ends, it says, now he was lame in both his feet. The reality is that his physical condition did not change, but he was a completely changed individual. Not everything in his life completely changed, but he was completely changed. And when you experience grace in your life, when you See the wonder of what Jesus did for you. Not everything in your life, just you're not going to have more money automatically. You're not going to have a bigger house. You're not going to have a bigger car. And if you're looking for those things, that's not grace. That's not what God's offering you. That's not going to change your life. But there was a deep-seated change in Mephibosheth's life. He was living one way in Lobodar, a place of nothing. And the next thing he knows, just by his free, unmerited grace, he's sitting at the king's table. He has everything that the king wants. It's a picture of our true king, and it's totally undeserved. And this is what grace does. It calls us out to this. Because if you think that you can earn this type of thing, if you can just manage your life, every other religion says if you manage your life in a certain way, you can get this. Do all these things. Do this. Do this. That's not what Christianity says at all. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Christianity says you don't deserve any of it, but my grace called you out of it. It's because of what I wanted to do for you. Someone said it this way. Paul Tillich in The Shaking of the Foundation says, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is though a voice were saying, You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you. And the name which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, we experience grace. Have you had that type of wonder? Where, it's, where you see God, not as God. Here, if you just, I'm trying, God. I'm trying to pursue you. Please accept this. And feel like you're not getting anything back from God. Then you haven't experienced the wonder of grace. The wonder of grace. Is saying, I don't deserve anything. But I can't believe that you came to me. I can't believe that you called me. I can't believe that you love me like this. And grace calls you out. You are not just a delusional old man anymore who may die soon. You're no longer a middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out, or a young person feeling the fire in the belly and being, begin to grow cold. You may be insecure. You may be inadequate, mistaken, or pot-bellied. Death, panic, depression, and disillusionment may be near you, but you are not that. You are accepted. And that's what the gospel calls us to. When we come to the table, we are invited every time to come sit at the king's table and to see what he done, has done for us. It is the embrace of grace, and it radically changed Mephibosheth's life. Undeserved favor. And that's what God offers to you through Jesus. And that's what he has offered to you through Jesus. And he says to you, don't do anything to try to get it. You can't get it. You can't 
make it happen. I come to you. I give it to you. But when it comes, when you've experienced the grace of God, you become converted. You, you can't say, hey, I got the grace of God, but, and, 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 but I just want to live the life that I like. I want to live it my way. Is that okay? You know, is it okay for me to do what I want to do, how I want to do it, where I want to do it? That's not experiencing the grace of God. Because when you experience the grace of God, you're overwhelmed by his wonder that he would call you. And then he converts you, just like Mephibosheth. Not every circumstance may change, but you will change. Mephibosheth was a changed individual, completely converted. He didn't go back and live at Lobodar anymore. He didn't live in his old ways. His life was different because he was called and converted by grace. It's the experience of grace. It's an undeserved calling. Do you sense the wonder of God's love in your life? Do you know that type of wonder? Do you feel like you're broken Life's beat you down. You've been a victim. You've victimized people. It just doesn't seem like it just can't be true what God says. It just can't be real that God would love me. You just can't feel it. God says that's a lie that you're not to believe because my grace is overwhelming. It's unstoppable. It's unbelievable. It will change you. It will draw you to me. And just let me show you my wonder. Just let me demonstrate it to you. Just experience it. See me for who I am and I will show you that it's my desire to take all your wrongs and make them right. And the way you know that is because I left heaven and became a man and suffered just like you suffered. And I lived where you lived And I took all your guilt, all your shame, all your pain on myself, and I know what it feels like. And I'm extending you grace. One of my uncles, who's not my uncles, is named Roy Sherrington, and he was very close to our family. And he grew up completely away from God, completely on his own, lived a very wild life, and he had this woman in his life a Sunday school teacher, a Christian, who knew him. And she was intentional with her grace. She was excessive in her compassion for him. She'd say, Roy, you need to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? And she'd tell him some verses, and she'd tell him some verses. And he completely rejected it. And then he's 25 years old, in a bunker in Vietnam, all by himself. The wonder of God's grace overwhelmed him. And every verse that that woman said to him came back. And he said, it's like she was standing right next to me, even after 15 years, quoting to me, Jesus loves you. There's grace for you, Roy. There's grace for you. And in a bunker in Vietnam, all by himself, he saw himself as a sinner, was awed by the wonder of God's grace and that his life changed. And a couple years ago, he wrote this called Grace. His life was not easy growing up. And he was a Mephibosheth, he felt like. And he wrote this and he says, Into this world, poor and in pain, unloved, unwanted, born in vain. Why was I here? 
I never had a place, never anything special, just another face. Envious of those who had so much, envious of those I couldn't touch. Jealous of the gifted who stood so tall until I received the greatest gift of all. Christ, the Savior of my soul, has given me everything I lacked. I will praise him for eternity, but there is no way I can pay him back. That's grace. Have you experienced that in your life? Are you in awe of the grace of God? Or are you still trying to earn some favor from God? Still trying to do something for God? Still, even as a believer, thinking, man, if I could just do this, my situation will change. That's not grace. Grace says don't do anything. You can't do anything. It's just a free gift of mine. I want to give it to you. I love you unconditionally. Unconditionally. He's not here today. I'm going to tell the story anyway, and I'll be done. But Brett Collins' daughter plays basketball for Kishwaukee College. And so yesterday, there was only five teams, five players available on the team. And so Brett put on his Facebook, hey, go out there and have a PR, best PR, Lexi. Go do it. And he goes, your, your, your team gets 20 fouls. Um, use them all and use them well. I love it. And in many ways, that's what God still says for us. Grace is so scandalous, so unbelievably overwhelming, that all the things that you may be sitting here feeling shameful about, embarrassed that you did, feeling like, how can I think that way? Why did I let this happen? I'm no good. God, how could you love me? All that stuff, those are just all fouls. And all of them have been taken care of by Jesus. Through his grace, you're not going to be fouled out ever as a believer when you're trusting in Jesus Christ. And he calls you to himself and he says, look at the wonder of my grace and let it change your life. Let it convert you. Not by your efforts, but by just looking what Jesus has done. And when you see that wonder, it will start to conform you and convert you you to the image of his son and it's unbelievably generous and that's what we celebrate as we come to the table this morning let's pray Your grace 